And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the busy intersection where faith and reason meet. I'm Doug Keck, your host here. And of course, you can email your questions to us at spitzersuniversitywtn.com, central part of the program. Check out Father Spitzer's myriad websites, the Magis Center one, the Purposeful Universe, and also spitzercenter.org for all things Spitzerian. And of course, we have Father Spitzer's Universe is always available <laughs> on our EW10 YouTube channel and our very powerful and ever-growing EW10 on-demand page. While you're at it, on our on-demand page, check out some great new programming, including we've got, we just added The Matter of Life. It's a powerful pro-life movie exposing the truth behind abortion by emphasizing the humanity of the unborn child. You can see it for free and on-demand 24-7 free on demand. What could be better than that? Our topic, the Holy Eucharist from Father's book, Escape from Evil's Darkness, will be our topic today and a new book of the month for June, close to my heart. It's Father Benedict's, Father Benedict answers your questions by the great late Father Benedict Groeschel, <laughs> uh, beloved uh, friar, uh, started the CFRs. Uh, personally, I think a great saint and a uh, man who uh, was uh, so important here on this network and a great, great friend of Mother Angelica. Check out that book, proudly published by E.W. Chen, based on his, uh, his, he used to call it his question box on his, his primetime show. With that said, we turn to another insightful priest featured here on the network. It's our own Father Spitzer. <laughs> great to see you again, Father. If you'd kick things off with a prayer, that'd be great. Great to be with you. You bet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. Send your Holy Spirit down upon us now, Doug, myself, our whole audience and team, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Always great to be with your Father. Uh, some interesting stories out there right up your wheelhouse. You know, it's amazing so many uh, years, and this person puts in this particular article, um, was talking and, and commenting on an article that had come out on, in the New York Times. But their mm. point was, I thought, that the, the headline is, New York Times polyamory puff piece proves conservative Christians right again. And the point he makes is, for fear-mongering hicks, conservative Christians are remarkably prescient. Our latest prophetic triumph is seen in New York Times puff piece pushing legal recognition of polygamy. And not only polygamy, oh. but the whole idea of polyamory. The difference is that while polygamy traditionally consisted of man living with more than one wife, Polyamory consists of a group of men or a group of women all being together in various permutations. And I think the point with this is interesting is so many times when we, we, we would kind of break through these quote-unquote social barriers, uh, people would say, well, yeah. this is a slippery slope, and the next thing you know, you're going to have this and that. Everybody says, oh, no. Oh, that'll never happen. <laughs> it never happened. And five years later, the, you say, well, I thought yeah. this wasn't going to happen. Oh, no, no, that's old news now, right? <laughs> so now we're into yeah, polyamory right, puff pieces here in the New York Times. So uh, your take on the well, destruction of the nuclear family has, in fact, 
exploded, I guess, is basically what we're dealing with here. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, I was just going to say that. What's wrong with polyamory and <laughs> polygamous relationships? Well, number one, it's horrible for the children. Mm -hmm. Let's just take the first victim in line. Mm -hmm. The second thing is it will undermine the family within the culture. You know, the idea that we can have emotional intimacy with gazillions of different partners, um, you know, in, in some sort of significant way is, is the myth that has been disproved again and again and again in, in every culture that has kind of moved in, into a pagan domain. And, um, and, and the undermining mm -hmm. of the family within the culture and the undermining of the family um, uh, for the children is going to present a host of cultural problems, a host of social disconnectivity, a host of not being able to transmit appropriate values and ethics from one generation to the next, and a bunch of children mm -hmm. who are going to be, in fact, not only kind of disenfranchised, but a bunch of children that are really uh, going to be um, feeling the weight of the depression and so forth that will come from families that are utterly disconnected, where they don't have the proper emotional intimacy and care, where they do not have the sense that they are loved by any significant person, but they're more or less passed from one place to another place mm -hmm. in this sort of familial environment. We know what this does. It just kills the family, but above all, it kills the children, it kills the culture, and of course, once again, it kills any sense of decent values and ethics which are transmitted first and foremost any decent sense of religiosity is going to be killed uh, within the culture some may say yay no more morals in religion mm -hmm. within our culture but we know that the minute that happens we get skyrocketing rates uh, increases in depression, anxiety, suicides, antisocial aggressivity, familial tensions, and everything else that basically leads to complete dilapidation within society. Congratulations, the wisdom of polyamory and poly polygamy has come once again to the fore to be relived as if we were dopes that knew no history. Anyway, of course right. I don't look at it with great favor. Right, absolutely. Another study, Institute for Family Studies, came out with uh, What's the Plan? Cohabitation, Engagement, and Divorce. Uh, the highlights of the study, uh, it says the timing of moving in together is robustly associated with marital instability, per this new report, as you've said yep. many times. Consistent with prior research, couples who cohabitated before marriage were more likely to see their marriages end than those who did not. And those who started cohabitating before being engaged were more likely to experience marital dissolution than those who only did so after being engaged or already being married. So just a reinforcement of what yep. you've been saying. The, that's right. The data comes out and gets stronger and stronger with each passing year. All I can say is, why can't we read these tea leaves? Cohabitation, uh, co you know, in the cultural myth is a great thing because you can really discover who your partner is before you get married. But after you're finished experiencing um, the, the sliding effect and the asymmetry of, of motives between the man and the woman and 
in the relationship, et cetera, et cetera. After all that's finished, you'll see this divorce rate continues. The longer you cohabitate, the more likely you are to get a divorce. The longer you cohabitate, the shorter your marriage is likely to be. And the longer you cohabitate, the, more, the less marital satisfaction you will have. How many studies do we need mm -hmm. to show that the culture is dead, dead, dead wrong? Cohabitation doesn't help anything. What helps things is real commitment, real public commitment, real devotion to children, because children bring the best out in everybody. And guess what? Even though children have their moments when they can make <laughs> life miserable, children definitely, overall, make people happier, they make people more aware of their own value. They make their sense of their lives much more valuable. After all, and if you have any religiosity at all, you're bringing little eternities into the world. Mm -hmm. What could be more noble than that? Absolutely. That's the real, you know, mm -hmm. the traditional view of the family once again, and the respect for sexuality and public commitment once again prove, is proven through the statistics to be just the right formula, Goldilocks all over again. Right. Well, I think one of the things, you know, I experienced at least having worked, you know, uh, 20 years in, in kind of a media, secular media in New York, et cetera, mm -hmm. LA stuff, uh, you get behind it and you see who's behind these, you know, perspectives that are being pushed through media. And you realize the broken <laughs> lives and the kind of misguided types who are the people exactly. who are leading these things, uh, you know, and, and, and it makes it easier to understand why the kind of programming and perspectives are so warped. Unfortunately, most people don't realize that. Oh, yeah, no, it's if if uh, if we looked at, you know, at the old adage, consider the source, mm -hmm. I think we would be appalled. But the statistics mm -hmm. anyway reveal it. You don't even have to look at, at the source or the people that are involved because uh, it's clear that the destruction, right. the familial destruction, the social destruction, the, sto the destruction of, of value and ethics within the culture, and of course the destruction of people emotionally is pretty considerable. Right. And um, I, you know the statistics speak for themselves. Yeah, recently there was, uh, I think, some sort of celebrity, whatever at whatever level, was speaking out about you know the right wing, etc., and, and was proudly announcing that. Uh, her three children, I think, one was non-binary and the other, two were trans, you know, and it, it gives you a basic idea of these are the people who we're turning yeah. to to instruct us on good family life. Yeah, or also, you know, with all of those uh, uh, interesting developments, you just want to, you know, uh, take a look at the poor future life of those poor kids, right. you know, because they're the ones, they're the victims. You know, I mean, they're the ones that go on in, in the social belief that they've been encouraged to, to pursue. And then, of course, you look at what's happening to them, their mortality rates, their emotional disappointment and anxiety, followed by the suicides. Mm -hmm. Oh, you got to be kidding me. Right. You know, what a wonderful job uh, you have all done uh, to make sure that you vouch, vouchsafe the happiness of your right. children. Right. Boy, happiness on the surface is not necessarily long-standing happiness. Right, absolutely. Being, my rest, my case. Yeah, so speaking of Benedict Rochelle, you know, he said money doesn't buy you happiness, it buys yeah. you comfort. 
and uh, you know, and yeah. so those are the things that people think because yeah. they're comfortable in some ways that they're going to be happy when they're not, you know, and they have problems. And a lot of famous mm -hmm. pe people we know their children have a lot of issues because whether it's uh, the focus Absolutely. on that dealing with you know competing with a famous uh, parent or something else. I mean, that puts mm -hmm. a, we have enough pressure in our lives worrying about where we fit in without being you know the Mr. and Mrs. something or the son of somebody, you know? So it's tough out yeah. there with that. Oh yeah, and you know, when you feel like you're, you're the second, um, in second or third or fourth place compared to money, position, and honor and power, right. well, you know, it speaks for itself. Right. Um, maybe your perception is right. And, but anybody who grows up with that perception uh, definitely uh, has a difficulty believing in their lovability uh, right. going forward. And many and times that's, that's, a, that's a huge problem. Right, seeking yeah. attention, uh, whether it's acting out in the past oh, yeah. or this kind of, uh, yeah. you know, uh, trans mm -hmm. or pansexual kind of thing, yeah. all as a, a, in its own way yeah. as can be a form of acting out. Another study recently yes, came, yes can. came out and said uh, many men experience worsened mental health and regret after a partner's abortion goes to say many men whose partners have an abortion often experience worsened mental health, okay? Uh, feelings of regret, and this is a new study mm -hmm. that had come out of uh, Oklahoma. And overall, 83% of those oh. men say they either sought help or could have benefited from talking to someone about their emotions following uh, the abortion where, where their partner, or whoever mm -hmm. that was, uh, the female mm -hmm. in the relationship mm -hmm. had the abortion. And it goes on to say, men's grief is often disenfranchised. The report says their grief, a natural response to loss, is often invalidated. Men perceive that their thoughts and feelings are dismissed or not valued, and many remain silently in pain. Just want to mention that study. Yeah, no, I mean, that's kind of interesting because the, uh, uh, the other statistic that was found um, uh, by that Coleman study with three-quarters of a million women, um, she found that... Uh, that um, in the 82 percent, I believe, was the the statistic mm. um, who had an abortion, uh, definitely had much greater um, uh, difficulties um, emotionally mm. and more emotional problems than those who brought their child to term or never got uh, pregnant in the first place. So you can see that that statistic with the right. men is pretty similar pretty to that similar, for the right? women, although right, the right. yeah. The, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Women have though the, the the suicide rate increase is four times higher right. uh, when you have an abortion, and the uh, suicidal ideation is 2.5 times higher. Right. So it's yeah, it's real. And post-abortion syndrome, I guess this shows, doesn't just affect the women; it affects the men as well. Uh, right. I haven't seen that University of Oklahoma study, but I will get a hold of it. Okay. Uh, this is another st uh, story came out uh, from CNA, our own Kelsey Wicks, who always does a great job at CNA. But uh, I just mm -hmm. wonder if you had heard about this story about Sister Wilhelmina Lancaster OSB, founded the Benedictine Sisters of Mary, Queenie the Apostles, best known for their chart-topping Gregorian chant and classic Catholic hymn album. Uh, apparently, okay. uh, they had to uh, uh, kind of exhume her body because there was some water damage. And the African-Americans oh, founders did right, hear right, that. appears to be incorrupt yeah. uh, four years after her death, yeah. and her burial was in a simple wooden coffin. I just thought that was an interesting story. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, that's very interesting because uh, if you have a simple wooden coffin and you have no great deal of embalming there, uh, which most of those uh, good sisters who took their vow of poverty seriously, um, uh, basically you can expect a great deal of corruption under ordinary right. circumstances. So that's always... Uh, uh, you know, just truly a remarkable thing. But a lot of saints do uh, undergo this. Right. Uh, you know, I'm a great fan of Saint uh, Bernadette uh, Subiru, and um, mm. I, you know, they, they, you know, first of all, they found her body the first time incorrupt, but then everybody said, well, you know, uh, we better take her out again just to make double, double right. sure that she really is incorrupt. And of course, they, they re-exhumed her, and she still was almost completely incorrupt. Uh, you know, this is like about 40 years after the fact, or, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know if I'm remembering the, right, the, the right. years uh, perfectly, but the main thing, though, is uh, she definitely was uh, almost perfectly uh, preserved uh, in there, and, you know, without, you know, because the second time around, they wanted to test, you know, were there preservatives you use, mm. were there all kinds of embalming techniques? Right, right. And, the wax nope, or something. The old standard sisters, yeah, right. yeah, exactly. But uh, none of it was there, and the second exhumation uh, actually showed it right. so um, it was absolutely uh, I'm not surprised and I, right. I think Bernadette Subiru is she's wonderful and right. uh, of course that's the great um, saint behind the uh, Our Lady of Lourdes right absolutely and in this case uh, sister Wilhelmina they, they said, my, and you alluded to the crack in the coffin, mindful of the crack in the dirt in the coffin, the sisters carefully removed the body. The skeletal remains should have weighed about 20 pounds. Instead, the sisters were lifting. They estimated the body to weigh more like 80 or 90 pounds. So, Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> right. So. Yeah, same with Bernadette Subiru. Yeah. <laughs> Among they, many others, by the right, way. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, uh, like uh, Francis Xavier from my order. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, not only was her body yeah. in a remarkably preserved condition, her crown and bouquet of flowers were dried in place, and the profession candle with the ribbon uh, and the crucifix and rosary were all intact. They say even more remarkable is the complete preservation of her holy habit made from natural fibers, which she, she fought uh, so vigorously throughout her life, uh, and just yeah. she looked perfect. So it's amazing. So something. Yeah. It shows that little yeah, reminders. No, I'm not you know. Surprised. You know. So <laughs> with that, we'll move on to some uh, yeah. questions on our program that have sure. been sent to us by our, our wonderful viewers who always are interested in Father's opinions. Dear Father Spitzer, in <laughs> reference to John 6:54 where Jesus said, he who uh -huh. eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will mm -hmm. raise him up on the last day. What about the fallen away Catholics and the Protestants who do not believe in the real presence? Will they still have the chance to receive eternal life in heaven? And this is from Joanne. Well, Joanne, there's always a chance uh, that anybody can receive eternal life because there's always a chance um, that there could be last-minute repentance. There's always a chance that uh, somebody can, uh, uh, even with the last second to go, mm -hmm. uh, you know, change their minds on things of that nature. So um, absolutely, uh, uh, there's a, always a, a real chance um, that uh, people can um, 
uh, experience the, the light and the resurrection of Christ. Mm -hmm. But of course, there is the need at some point uh, to want Jesus in your life, to accept him in your life, uh, and to ask for some form of repentance uh, for the things that you have done improperly or sinfully. Mm -hmm. And so that, um, you know, that's, that's needed, but uh, once that's there, there's uh, absolutely uh, the possibility. Right, but we also have to remember our Lord said, to whom much is given, much is expected. So those of us who are yeah. Catholics and are given this gift up front might find ourselves being held to a higher standard in some ways. Well, I mean, I think we do know uh, quite a bit, but you don't want to say either that fallen away Catholics have better chance, you know, of, of, uh, of moving toward the heavenly kingdom. Mm -hmm. What you basically want to say, though, is yes, if God gives us a lot of graces, he does expect us uh, to use those graces in the service of our families and the service of uh, his kingdom where we can. Uh, and to stay faithful mm -hmm. and to stay on the road, uh, that's uh, really important. Um, you know, to to right. uh, uh, to uh, you know to assert, but uh, at the same time, uh, you do have to say as well. You know, people can um, you know come in at the last minute. You know, I'm sure. always reminded of um, uh, John Vianney's uh, you know story that uh, right. this fellow who had jumped off the bridge, right. uh, Christ actually appeared to him and said, "Well." Um, I, he did repent on the way down, and right. and uh, I, if I'm going to believe anybody, it'll be John Vianney. Sounds My good. My gosh, yeah. that guy was not only holy, but you know, definitely right. not a uh, a liar. <laughs> well, we're thrilled to have just finished a program shot in England on the great sermons, which features one of his great sermons. So people can look for that coming up. And oh. we're also right now doing okay. uh, initial groundwork on a program on his life that'll be shot in ours, France, uh, and we seem like we're getting a lot of cooperation oh. there. So we're excited about that. That oh, might yeah, be something that's great. that shows up sometime Yeah, I think his life is year, remarkable. So, so absolutely. Mm -hmm. Next up, yeah. uh, dear Father Spitzer, I read a Catholic news agency article about the recent birth in the UK of a quote-unquote three-parent baby. Eggs from two women fertilized by one father were combined to form a third unique individual. As someone who was unable to bear children, I understand the lengths of an infertile couple would go through to have a baby, but this seems ghoulish. What are your thoughts? Would a third soul have been created by God? Natalie. No, no. Um, and you got the solution, Natalie. The creation of the soul is definitely the decision of God mm -hmm. himself. And so, um, you know, he, he's a, a soul is a transphysical uh, entity, right? And that, and we've talked about near-death experiences mm -hmm. and those kinds of things uh, on this program before, where you can see the very high likelihood that you do have a transphysical soul that will survive bodily death. But um, God would have a transphysical cause would be needed to create that transphysical being. So. Um, uh, from that vantage point, the decision is God's alone, and of course, coming from some, you know, m biological manipulation that somehow you could create a transphysical entity like a soul from manipulating two physical or three physical, um, you know, uh, uh, beings. Mm -hmm. You can't, you know, um, you know, you can't make something on a higher level come from just merely combining things on a lower level. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, we know this uh, from the great. Michael Polanyi, great philosopher and chemist, uh, you know, who wrote that book, the uh, the irreducibility of of life, mm -hmm. uh, or that article, and um, and 
um, life's irreducible form, I should say. Okay. But anyway, in that article, he shows uh, that the higher levels, uh, like biological levels, cannot be reduced to the physical components. So he, he calls them, you know, constraining structures. So that the constraining structures, you know, which constrain physical and, and chemical elements toward a particular new purpose, like metabolism or, uh, f um, you know, fissioning or, mm. uh, you know, survival, respiration, reproduction, that kind of thing. All of those kinds of biological functions are not prescribed in the laws of physics and chemistry. Mm. There are a whole new set of laws that cannot be reduced to the uh, components of uh, physics and chemistry. So um, you can see that there are already these levels there. The soul, of course, would be a really much higher transphysical level, which is above all physics, all chemistry, all biology, all sensitive psychology. It would be, you know, a completely new reality. And, and so um, God would have to do that, and it's God's decision. But as for it being ghoulish, yeah. Um, I think it's just, uh, I mean, it's the next step in uh, what are we doing? Mm. You know, are we trying to, to prove uh, uh, what, uh, uh, you know, how far we can bend uh, some sense of decency? Um, you know, I mean, uh, this, it's just, uh, it's crazy. And, mm. and of course, uh, if we do not um, bring some of this uh, biological manipulation and genetic manipulation under control, it will come back to haunt us, as it always has. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what makes anybody think that we're going to be any better than the Nazi doctors? Right. What? Right. What? You know, and of course, we started off this program with the, the presciousness of the conservatives. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know, and I guess we can see it once again. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, we, we're, we're constantly <laughs> we're progressing as people. We're evolving. We're, we're so much better people than yeah. the people of the past. Don't you know that? <laughs> well, we couldn't do those horrible things yeah. just because we did more of them in the 20th right. century than any other prior century. Uh, that must have been, you know, <laughs> pay no attention to those statistics. There. <laughs> That's right, to that man behind the curtain. <laughs> That's right, exactly. him too, right. <laughs> dear, dear Father, I read your book, New Proofs for the Existence of God. If I understand it correctly, mm -hmm. the multiverse is not a way for scientists to eliminate God because it also, too, has a beginning. Would this also be true in a block universe, Cliff? Yeah, Cliff, it's actually, um, there, well, I, this is just a brief explanation. And uh, I've got a brand new book coming out from Ignatius in September called Science at the Doorstep to God. So you can get the full uh, panoply of arguments that I'm just going to give you right mm -hmm. here. There are four reasons um, that a block, uh, there's, it applies to a block universe, it applies to a, a multiverse, it even applies to um, what's called a string universe in the higher mm -hmm. dimensional space of string theory, and it also applies to um, what's called bouncing universes or oscillating universes, expand and contract, expand and contract. And there's uh, four basic kinds of evidence from science that disprove the whole lot of them. Mm -hmm. uh, the first is, of course, uh, the Board of Lincoln and Guth uh, theorem, which shows that every expanding 
system. So it doesn't matter whether it's an expanding system, um, you know, a string expanding system, multiversal, any expanding system, uh, including our universe itself, which has a what's called an average Hubble expansion greater than zero, will have to have a beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, the second um, proof is the entropy evidence, and the entropy evidence is very, very important too, because in that kind of evidence, you can actually see that um, uh, the universe, uh, you know, or any known physical system has to wind down. Now, there are some people who think they can get out of uh, entropy, but I have to tell you, uh, these uh, multiverse attempts to get out of entropy, are they, they're very controversial, I'll just mm -hmm. say that. But the, um, uh, the main thing, uh, you know, like Sean Carroll's experiments and things, all of these things, entropy basically applies to every known physical system, and that's the, uh, the tendency of the system to basically run down. So mm -hmm. eventually, every physical system, isolated physical system, given a, uh, you know, enough time, will become a dead system. It will run out of um, what's called order, um, you know, that is necessary uh, in order for those physical systems to do work. And so if, uh, you know, no, no system can last for an infinite amount of time. Uh, from you know the vantage point of entry, they all have to have beginning. There's a third big area um, that comes in when you have what's called the infinite multiverse. So there, you know, the infinite multiverse was postulated uh, by several people, mm -hmm. um, you know, of late, and that infinite multiverse has two major flaws. Uh, the first one uh, had come out way back in the 1980, late 1980s uh, with respect to Boltzmann brains and brief brains. Essentially, without going into all the fullness of it, if you really did, if our universe really mm -hmm. was generated from an infinite multiverse, where, which was, goes you know, back eternally into the past, then every single one of us would be a Boltzmann brain that literally fluctuated into existence, fully loaded with all of its memories, and then, you know, kind of in a thermal vacuum, and then kind of shut down again and disappeared uh, after um, it's, it convinced you uh, that uh, it was you and you were living in an organic universe that you perceive yourself to live in. Mm -hmm. So, of course, if you don't want to consider yourself a Boltzmann brain, by the way, the odds that in, a, in an infinite multiverse, the odds that you would be a Boltzmann brain and not the organic life form that you perceive yourself to be and the other people in the world mm -hmm. you perceive them to be, uh, basically the odds against uh, you being that organic life form and being a Boltzmann brain are trillion, 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 trillion times higher than if you, uh, than you're being an organic life form. So if that's the case, you're a Boltzmann brain. And let's just face facts, if you're a Boltzmann brain, you're gonna uh, find yourself to, you know, all experience and all scientific knowledge based on experience and observation will have to be totally wrong. So that's an anti-scientific proposition from the get-go. And finally, Stephen Hawking and Thomas Hertog put the, uh, the final nail into the coffin mm -hmm. uh, in their, you know, Stephen Hawking's latest article in 2018, uh, where he basically, uh, this is a journal of high energy physics, but you can get on the Cambridge University website, you can get mm -hmm. the explanation 
for. Basically, what Hawking showed was that uh, you are, are if, if in order to have this infinite multiverse, you'd have to have what's called a fractal multiverse, and our universe could not have been generated from a fractal multiverse because if it were generated from a fractal multiverse, we would not have the separation uh, between quantum theory and classical physics that we do uh, in our universe. And furthermore, there'd be some remnant of that fractal uh, system that would be in our universe, which is completely absent, uh, that we can see, at least from LIGO and LISA, the two big gravitational wave detectors, we can see pretty clearly is not there. So Hawking and Hertog basically said, you know, not only did we not come from an infinite multiverse that lasted eternally, they actually said every multiverse would have to have a beginning, beginning right. uh, in past time, and not, uh, not only a right. beginning in past time, uh, but um, it would also have to be a very small right. number of bubble universes, most of which were like our own. Well, we've well hit when our, you put all we've, four we've, of those pe Right, pe we've hit our bubble here, so we've got to We've got to blockchain our <laughs> way to, uh, to a break. And hold that thought, Father. I'm sure you can. And All right. You've got to wait to get Very the rest good. of this explanation. We've got Father Spitzer's universe. He'll continue explaining what the universe is really all about. Stay with us. appreciate you staying with us as we continue on going deeper into Father Spitzer's universe, our topic of the Holy Eucharist. We'll get to that in a few minutes. We're going to finish up some of your questions. And Father, you want to finish explaining the nature of the oh, universe yeah. here. That would be great. Sure. Well, in, in, in general, when you put together the BVG theorem and the entropy evidence and the Boltzmann brief brain problem and uh, Stephen Hawking's and um, um, Thomas Hertog's prohibition of an infinite multiverse, it basically gets to the point where you're going to have to have a beginning in past time. And the beginning in past time implies a creator because a beginning really means a, a period prior to which physical reality did not exist. And if physical reality didn't exist, it was nothing. And the only thing that nothing can do is nothing. So if the universe was, uh, and the entire physical reality, whether a multiverse, a universe, a string universe, or whatever, a block universe, was nothing, then at one point, then it could never have moved itself from nothing to something because it was nothing and could only do nothing. Mm -hmm. And therefore, basically, the universe would have to, uh, if it has a beginning, would have to have some other transphysical, some other beyond the physical reality creator that moved it from nothing to something at some point, um, uh, you know, uh, in the finite past, um, uh, for, from our point of view, finite past, but in its eternity. Okay, very good. Dear Father Spitz, I heard some startling news that physicists have discovered microcellular proof, quote unquote, of God's existence called the God particle. Can you please explain this in terms a layperson can grasp? This is Margot. Now, this has been kicking around for a while, hasn't it? The God particle? Yeah, it has, point? Margaret. But I'm afraid the God particle really isn't a proof of God, and it certainly is not a disproof of God. Mm. Um, I think the, the expression uh, came uh, from the fact uh, that um, 
uh, in, um, in, in physics, there's a, there's a point at which um, uh, physical energy uh, has to be converted into particles. And because of that, uh, this guy Peter Higgs, who was a very brilliant physicist, uh, was trying to locate uh, some kind of a field, a Higgsian kind of a field, which would be, I guess, comp comparable to a kind of molasses. And so, you know, we've got all this energy at the beginning of the universe. How does it get converted into rest mass was the question. Mm -hmm. And they were looking for um, basically a Higgs boson, which would be uh, a manifestation of a Higgsian kind of field where it'd be like this molasses and it would take this, this burst of uh, lepton or uh, hadron energy and just slow it down. Mm -hmm. And so when it slows it down, uh, that would be the effect of giving it rest mass. Well, anyway, I think what happened was Peter Higgs came into his publisher and he wanted to call, I think, the book the GD mm -hmm. particle because he was so frustrated and it took so long to get to it. Mm -hmm. And of course, his publisher said, Peter, you can't use the word D, you know, in this thing. So he says, uh, 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 Peter goes, okay, just call it the God particle. Mm -hmm. Now that's, I don't know whether that was, uh, you know, uh, some kind of, you know, legend or not, right, right, right. Uh, you know, urban legend or apocryphal not. But, story uh, if, or if it's right. an apocryphal story, mm -hmm. but that's probably how the God particle got oh, uh, into the vocabulary, okay. and I think the, the the traditional media and the social media ran with it. Mm. But no, it has nothing to do with uh, uh, with creation actually at all, or with God at all. It, it really has to do uh, with a, a Higgs boson, and when the Higgs boson comes into uh, being, I think uh, this is already uh, after a highly inflationary accelerating moment where the universe moves from 10 to the minus 32 centimeters uh, to about the size of a marble very, very quickly, which you cannot imagine what a multiplicative effect that is in a very short amount of time. And in that inflationary mm -hmm. moment uh, that, that uh, took place, the Higgs particle, shortly after the cessation of the inflation, um, this uh, uh, Higgsian field right. uh, emerges and that's what uh, begins to uh, get to uh, this thing we call, um, uh, you know, rest mass, which gives rise to the particles that we have uh, today um, that form, you know, the constituents of our atoms, molecules, etc. But anyway, um, right. that comes probably somewhere in the neighborhood of probably uh, 10 to the uh, minus uh, 10 seconds after the Big Bang which, you know, you've already gone through uh, five epochs of creation by the time you get to the, to the Higgsian field. Mm -hmm. So that's well after the creation event. So anyway, just to let you know, it's really not about God. Right. Um, and it's, it doesn't disprove God, it doesn't prove right. God, it just simply, um, uh, right. you know, Shows you how you got rest mass but, uh, I, I particles that we know of today. I bet, I bet you sold a lot of books and got a lot of articles read uh, from yeah. that title. <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Let's get to another one. Dear Father Spitzer, how do I answer someone who says <laughs> the universe is too big to be made for only humans? Clift. 
Oh, gee, Cliff, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think that God has his way of doing things, and, you know, he has an abundance of generosity, and so I do really believe that he could have made the entire universe for humans, but right now the jury is out because, right, we know that we have about 10 to the 22nd exoplanets out there. Mm -hmm. um, maybe that's a... Uh, an exaggeration, but at the very least, we have probably 10 to the 15th uh, exoplanets out there. Those are planets that are just like Earth, oh. right? They have a sun that's like our sun that has the various characteristics, that, and the Earth, uh, the planet would have some kind of a magnetic field, etc. It would be a certain distance from the sun, uh, you know, so that uh, from its star, so that it could get. Uh, uh, you know, we're not burned up, but also not, uh, you know, d dying of ch uh, cold, mm -hmm. etc. So the idea would be that these exoplanets, let's even say there are only 10 to the 15th of them out there. Well, you know, if our, if from our Big Bang, let's suppose that when there was a Big Bang, um, uh, God put all of the laws of biology and all of the laws of sensitive psychology uh, put them into the um, into the uh, universe right at that moment of the Big Bang. Well, if he did put them in there, uh, then maybe there could be another um, uh, planet at which those biological uh, laws and those biological operators would come into effect at some moment, uh, organizing mm. the physical and chemical components. And when they did come into effect, they could have produced some elementary life forms on other planets, or maybe even some complex ones like plants or even bugs or um, worms or mm -hmm. possibly even um, you know mammals. Uh, one thing though is you can't explain a soul from that, mm -hmm. so you can't explain um, if you found an alien being, for example, that had an intelligence like ours or had a self-reflective capacity like ours or had the five transcendental um, uh, desires and awareness for perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and being like ours, mm -hmm. if you found that kind of intelligence out there, you would uh, have to know that th that being had a soul. Mm -hmm. And I think in a previous episode, I did talk about um, why self-consciousness can't be right. reduced right. to physical processes. That was last week. Right? And, yeah. I, and you, yeah. right, yeah, that's right, last week. And you can't reduce, um, uh, for example, what we call conceptual ideas uh, to physical structures and processes. And you can't also reduce transcendental awareness for perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home to physical processes. These would require a soul. Mm -hmm. And we have seen the evidence for a soul uh, in these near-death experiences, terminal lucidity, intelligence, and severe hydrocephalic patients, etc. And so all of these things just do show that there probably is some kind of uh, transphysical, which means beyond physical mm. processes and structures, beyond physics, a uh, kind of component of your being um, that not only is capable of surviving your physical death, uh, but can also be, it, it is the agency of self-reflectivity, the agency of uh, rational um, self-reflective uh, awareness, and is the agency of your higher desires for perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and being. 
and in addition to that, uh, your moral awareness to the great proof of John Henry Newman uh, to that effect. So you probably do have a soul, and if you find an alien being with a soul, you can be sure then, because it's a transphysical soul, it didn't mm -hmm. come through a physical, organic, evolutionary process. And if it didn't, then God was the creator of that, and mm -hmm. he intends that that person know him and know his son, Jesus Christ. So get at it and catechize that right. alien and baptize him when possible. Right, so right. Uh, that would be my view uh, of that. But no, I would say there's certainly possibility for a micro, a microbial life and uh, maybe even plant life um, and certainly maybe even, you know, some kind of uh, lower um, um, uh, animals, you know, um, uh, animalic life, but maybe even some higher, more complex vertebrate and mammalian life. So you're not so, into um, thinking that uh, they, we're getting buzzed by people from outer space, like there's been a lot of that buzz, so to speak, recently? <laughs> I don't know if we're being buzzed uh, from people by outer space, but I do know one thing. I, I feel like I've got a, enough autonomous uh, uh, freedom right now mm -hmm. to be able to say no to being buzzed by people from outer space. Okay. Okay. So uh, <laughs> I haven't seen any evidence of alien life here. I just think if there is intelligent alien life, right. God had obviously something right. to do with it. And if, uh, if that's the case, then they can be reasoned with. They're going to have the same moral conscience that we have, uh, because I think God would not have deprived uh, a free, abstract, intelligent human being from that conscience so necessary to keep him on the right. road, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those things, I think we could sit right. down with that. A group of aliens and actually reason with them. Right. They could be cruel, they could ignore their conscience, they would be free too, and they could say, okay, we want to get those dastardly humans. But mm -hmm. frankly, if they could travel just from the nearest star to here, let alone travel from just, you know, the extreme of our Milky Way galaxy to here, mm -hmm. uh, to, to the Earth, if they could do that, they could destroy us in a nanosecond. Their technology would be so light years ahead of ours. Right. I mean, they could destroy us in a nanosecond. So, I mean, um, the fact that they haven't is a pretty good indicator that if they're around here, they've got some moral conscience and they're not doing it. And of course, right. if they haven't been around here, then they haven't been around here. Right. So uh, I wouldn't lose well, a whole lot of sleep well, on Well, they it. might still be working on the idea trying to find uh, intelligent life on this planet, as we say, right? You know, because that seems to be in short supply <laughs> oh, yeah. as well, right? <laughs> well, I won't get too cynical. That's there right. are these guys Especially like, uh, you know, Doug Keck and Father Benedict Gersell. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to uh, Eucharistic adoration from your book. You, goes, you mentioned the fact Good. that Eucharistic devotion goes all the way back to the custom of fermentum if I'm saying that right, beginning in 120 A.D., what is that? Mm -hmm. Well, basically, there were monks that wanted uh, generally to take uh, um, the Eucharist, uh, first of all, to um, uh, sick people mm -hmm. and also monks that wanted to 
um, uh, keep the Eucharist in sanctuaries uh, where there might not have been uh, mass uh, celebrated, but wanted uh, to keep the, the real presence of the body and blood of Christ uh, there in those sanctuaries. Hmm. And so um, they, you know, uh, had these equivalents of um, very, very early pixes, if I can put it that way, mm -hmm. uh, where they could transport um, a piece of the Holy Eucharist uh, to sick people or actually to uh, bring uh, that to a sanctuary. Eventually, of course, they founded sanctuaries uh, around it. And then, of course, uh, you can see how from there, uh, the idea of having a tabernacle oh, with okay. Jesus, uh, the real presence of Jesus in it would have come. And of course, Eucharistic adoration uh, would have developed from there. There's a very good article by John Hardin, um, a Jesuit, uh, for, oh, died about uh, Oh, yes, 15, the great John ago. Hardin, right, yes. Uh, great friend yeah, of Mother Angelica's, but right? He, it's, yeah. Yeah. Oh, exactly. He's got yeah. a, a very complete article on the whole history of, um, you know, the, the Eucharist, uh, uh, Eucharistic sanctuaries, Eucharistic adoration. Um, and it's free of charge. Um, just put John Hardin, mm -hmm. Eucharistic Adoration History, into your um, uh, uh, Google or whatever, right. uh, you know, uh, search engine you're using. Yeah, absolutely. So you talk about the fact that uh, it's been recounted uh, about the experiencing Christ in the sacrament has been recounted by dozens of other saints, St. Saint Thomas Aquinas, St. Francis de Sales, St. Yeah. Margaret Mary, uh, St. John Paul II, to mention a few. You talk, uh, talk about also the Council of Trent who said, Christ should be worshiped now in the Eucharist no less than he had been in the first century Palestine because the Blessed Sacrament is the same God whom the apostles adored in Galilee. So it's interesting, sometimes you get this kind of thing, it seems to be over the last 50 years or so, this kind of active versus static and people's concern that, you know, adoration was taking away from the action of the Mass. What's your thought about those things? Well, I don't believe that at all. I think, you know, the activity of the Mass, of course, that's the holiest of the holies. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, we should go to Mass and uh, not, you wouldn't want to stop going to Mass to go to adoration. But short of that, of course, adoration is a great complement to the Mass. Because as I think it, maybe it was last week, I was talking about how the Eucharist, you know, in, in adoration, it just has that exuding effect mm -hmm. where it kind of can be almost empathetically felt in a chapel, especially when you are aware. You can say, well, Spitzer, you're just talking yourself into it. Well, honestly, I'm not a very good talker of myself into anything. But aside from that fact, I do really believe that I can sense empathy when it's there and with real people, and I'm not right. making it up. So when I sense empathy with the Holy uh, Eucharist and Jesus in the Holy Eucharist in the tabernacle or in adoration, I, I, I think I know it when it's there. And by the way, every time I go to adoration, I don't have that sense of empathy. So I have a, this sense that, you know, I, I don't think I'm talking myself into it. I think mm -hmm. God makes that, you know, if we're looking for his presence in the Eucharist, if we want to be in connection with him in the Eucharist, on occasion, mm -hmm. he gives us that grace. And when he gives us that grace, we become just like John Paul II, 
you know, who could just feel it walking down right. a corridor, you know, with all the doors shut. The door looks identical to all the other doors on this entire corridor. Mm -hmm. He walks past it and knows he's walking past a chapel right. with the Eucharist there and goes right on in. So all I can tell you is uh, if he felt it through the mm -hmm. closed doors, then maybe I'm not just, uh, you know, making things up right. when I feel like in, uh, uh, his presence uh, when I'm there in adoration. What does that do? It focuses my contemplation. And so it makes my prayer very deep indeed. And I think that whole John Harden article, Father John Harden article, is a very good article. And uh, gets, it's a little lengthy and complete, but you can just get the main sections, uh, you know, from his little section headings there and get the idea. You know, it's a beautiful history right. of Eucharistic adoration. Well, you quote... Great uh, compliment to right. the Mass. Absolutely. Paul VI uh, talking about some of the... Uh, in addition to the consolation and spiritual mm -hmm. growth coming from the adoration of the Lord in the Eucharist, there's additional graces. He talks about the first grace raising the level of morals, a second grace strengthening of virtue. And he said, you say, as we identify more and more with the heart of Jesus, we grow in the desire for his virtues, temperance, chastity, yep. zeal for souls, mm -hmm. patience and forgiveness generosity, gratitude, humility, all of these virtues serve as key virtue of love. Yes, that's right. And of course, I, in my view, um, uh, Jesus, of course, is the archetype of love and is unrestricted, unconditional love himself. So I think he has all of those virtues. And as we uh, adore him in the sacrament, as we receive him, especially uh, at Mass, uh, we can uh, absolutely uh, begin to sense this transformation of our hearts. And I've talked, you know, about my little story mm -hmm. of being in college many times on the program, but I was the guy who was most surprised to hear right. from people. When I started going to daily mass, people would say, hey, Spitzer, you're changing. I go, mm -hmm. no, I'm not changing. Well, you, you really are changing, mm -hmm. you know? And I said, no, I'm the same utilitarian, you know, numbers guy who really didn't hold anybody in particular esteem throughout <laughs> my entire life that I used to be. And they go, well, you still are like that, but less so. <laughs> and of course, I would always say, well, wow, you know, maybe there's something happening to me. And I know something happened to me because the more I kept going to daily mass, uh, the, you know, I lost the hard exterior, um, you know, and I can tell you this for a fact that my joy uh, increased. You know, I used, I wasn't the, you know, just the happy guy all the time when I was uh, uh, in college, you know, I, uh, I had my um, uh, looking for profit and power and, mm -hmm. you know, and honors, riches and glory, as they say, and uh, did have that dimension in me. But I can tell you this, it, uh, it has a dampening effect on your joy. And the minute you are set free from that by having the Lord living in you in this sacrament, your joy just increases mm -hmm. and people will go, you know, well, how come you're so happy? Well, I don't know, <laughs> you know, maybe it's God dwelling in me, right. you know, maybe it's exactly the joy that Jesus promised in John 15, 11, when he says, I tell you all these things that my joy may be yours and your joy may be complete. Right. So there it is. 
I think the joy is a part of the Eucharistic gift, and I know that's true right. in my life. Uh, I mean, it has really happened to me. I also know that the serenity, uh, the peace that comes with trying to live in the truth of Christ, I know that that serenity and peace right. is palpably there much more than I used to have uh, before right. I was, uh, um, as they say, receiving the Lord right. every day at Mass. Also, Paul VI mentions comfort for the sorrowful and strength for the weak is another uh, factor an mm -hmm. impact of the Eucharist as we kind of move off this topic so we can move on to another topic yeah. next week. With that said, Father, we'll ask you for your blessing. Wow. Uh, and um, bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord, who is filled with that compassion and that truth, and above all the joy that comes from his life, his love, and just fill you with that same joy so that it might exude through you to others and that you might be the source of joy and hope and compassion for those whom you lead and meet. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you so much as always, Father Spitzer. Be well. We shall see you next week. We hope to see all of you next week. Don't forget about Father Spitzer's books and DVDs available through our EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com. All Things Catholic. Next week, we're going to be kicking something off. Topics from Father's book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, a new book. You know, look to check that out and maybe purchase it as well. And a bookmark this weekend, Am I Not Your Mother? Reflections on Our Lady of Guadalupe by Archbishop Luis Maria Martinez, presented by Father Sebastian White. Very interesting book. We've also got St. John Bosco, Mission to Love, filmed in Italy. This movie tells the story of the many challenges St. John Bosco overcame as he worked with the youth in the tough city streets. That's June 3rd, Saturday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We need another John Bosco. There's lots of stuff going on in the streets. But next time we see you, we'll be in Father Spitzer's universe. Thanks.